a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be camping out for most of our time this morning. I've, uh, I've had a terrifying experience this weekend. Um, my, uh, my wife is out of town. She's at a baby shower for her best friend in California. And so I'm flying solo um, with the kids. And it has been, um, here, here's, what I've, here's what I've realized. I knew before that my wife was great. Now I know in a different way. My wife is amazing. And she is, yeah, see, here, guys, here, guys this is for free. Um, whenever somebody says that, you just elbow your wife or you say amen and you say, baby, so are you. So are you. Um, I've been reminded afresh how much she does, and I've remi- been reminded um, how much her kids love her. I've, I've heard this phrase throughout the course of our time together over the last few days, um, where uh, you can probably finish the sentence for me. After I do something, they will tell me, that's not the way that... Right. That's not the way. And I want to look at them and say, believe me, I am more aware of that than you are. You know, like, I, I cut up a peach and brought it to the table when we were eating lunch yesterday, and they looked at it, and they said, that's not the way mom cuts the peach. And I wanted to say, just taste it. I bet it tastes the same. No, it doesn't? All right, well, I, you know, um, I brought the sandwich to the table, and they're like, mom cuts off the crust. I'm like, well, you're allergic to the crust. Can we deviate a little bit from the plan of mom? And, and if you see my daughter, Avery, in the hall, will you just walk up to her, pat her on the back, make her self-esteem feel a little bit better because her hair looks absolutely ridiculous today. I mean, the poor girl, the poor girl. And so I'm combing her hair and I don't know how, ladies, I don't know how you do it, but I'm pulling her hair and I, I'm like ripping the hair out of her head. And she lurks back with tears in her eyes and she says, that's not the way that mom does it. And I'm like, the fact that you have any hair on your head at all means that yes, you are right. It's not the way that mom does it. I found out something very um, true this weekend. And that is this, that there is a right way to do things in my house, and there's a wrong way to do things in my house. And the right way to do things is the way that mom does them. <clears throat> and the wrong way is any other way than the way that mom does them. I don't know about you. I, I want to do things right. I don't know about you. I think we run into this problem in life also, that, that we want to do things the right way, the quote-unquote right way. Especially if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, and you're here, and you're probably saying, yeah, yes and amen, right? I want to do things the quote-unquote right way. I want to do things the way that, that God designed them to be done. Even if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, you're probably saying, you know what? I don't really know about what God says, but I do want to do things the right way. I think that if there's life in one way, and hope in one way, and peace in one way, then I want to go that way. But oftentimes, you may agree that it's hard to know what the right thing is. Um, there's this song that John Mayer, the great American poet, wrote. Um, <laughs> if he is, we're in trouble. But he wrote this song um, a few years ago, and he says this. I'm driving up 85 in the kind of morning that lasts all afternoon, just stuck inside the gloom. Four more exits to my apartment, but I'm tempted to keep the car and drive and leave it all behind. Because I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. Like he's talking about this decision he made to drop out of music school at Berkeley and move to Georgia. He goes, I don't know if it was the right call. I don't know if it was the right decision. I don't know if it was the right thing. So he has this chorus in the song and it goes like this. Am I living it right? Am I living it right? Am I living it right? 
why Georgia, why? So he sort of blames it on a state, which is an easy way out. But, but, but hey, that's, this is not a question that a lot of us have. Am I, am, I, am I living this right? Even when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, am I, am I, am I living it right? Am I doing this thing that we call following Jesus? Am I, am I doing it right? There's these people during Jesus' day, uh, the time when Jesus came and, and, and taught and lived and, and died here on earth. There's these people that sort of had a corner on, on living it right. Uh, they, called it, they called it righteousness. They called it living, they called this sort of idea of living right righteous, which literally means right living. To be in right relationship, to be in right action, to be living it right, essentially. There's this group, they were called the, the Pharisees, and they sort of had this corner on the market as far as what it looked like to live right. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Pharisees, and we're going to explore sort of who they were and, and what they taught, because Jesus has a lot of interactions with them. And this series isn't going to be coming down heavy-handed on the Pharisees, because as I've studied the Pharisees, I've seen uh, a case study on me. Um, so I don't want to come down too hard on me. But I've also seen the way that Jesus so graciously comes alongside of these, um, most of them men, um, and points them, corrects their misunderstanding of what it means to live in relationship with God and points them back to the gospel of grace and mercy. It is beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and this morning we're going to lay a foundation as we jump into this study. But these guys, the Pharisees, the guys who had the corner on living it right, the, the sort of righteousness market. I need to explain to you sort of the background on how they formed and who they were. You see, the Pharisees was a group that developed a few hundred years before Jesus comes onto the scene. It was a group of people who were formed. This group was formed out of hardship, out of pain, and out of suffering. You see, um, th their formation really happened in between the end of your Old Testament and the beginning of your New Testament. There's about 400 years of history in between there. And in this 400 years, um, the Greeks became a, a powerhouse in the world, and they started to what they called evangelize, which just meant that they came to different towns, and they forcibly um, put their value system on that town and on that city. Well, in Jerusalem, the Greeks tried to outlaw things like keeping the Sabbath. They tried to outlaw um, ceremonial sacrifice in the temples. They tried to outlaw uh, followers of God in the Old Testament from actually being able to live out what it meant to be a follower. And so this group of Jewish people formed. They were called the Pharisees, and literally it means the separate ones. The people who said to the Greeks and eventually the Romans, no, we're not going down that road. We're not going, down that, that, we're not going in that direction. And if you've heard of the Maccabean War, this was the war that sort of spurred on the formation of this group, where they started to define themselves by the way that they interacted with God. They started to rate themselves on how well they kept the law. They started to find their identity in being people that didn't deviate at all from this book. That was their quest. That was their identity. That was what their hope was in. And as you understand the context in which their group formed, you could see how that would be true. If you have outside forces on you saying that you can't do certain things and you're going to preserve the, the Sabbath and preserve sacrifices and preserve interacting with God, well, you start to grow pretty strong in your convictions, don't you? So when Jesus comes on the scene, when Jesus comes on the scene, they develop rules 
to keep them separate from the rest of everybody else, both in Israel and in the surrounding nations trying to force their culture on them. They developed customs that would allow them to keep their identities and their, their distinctiveness as a group sharp. And when the New Testament uh, times begin, this group is very sort of ingrown and obsessed with whether or not they're doing a good job living it right. And according to them, they were. According to them and really everybody else in Israel, they would have pointed at them, looked at them, and said about them, they're the people who are doing exactly what God wants them to do. They are righteous, as it were. So it makes the way that we jump into this story of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees all the more poignant. Because look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and what Jesus says. I mean, this is great. Because everybody in the crowd would have been shocked. He said, for I tell you, unless you're what? Righteousness, unless your right living, your right relationship with God exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, there was a whole mountainside full of people who just went, well, that is not good. That, that's going to that's gonna hurt us because there's no way we could be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, come on. And they were absolutely shocked. Here's what Jesus does, though. In the very first part, in the very first part of this message, he lays out what it looks like and what it means to be his followers. And as we get to verse 20, as we get to verse 20, he sort of hits this climactic point where he starts what we're going to refer to as this revolution of what it looks like to live rightly. And you see, here's the deal. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, there's a pen in the back of the seats if you want to follow along that way. We find that the Jesus revolution, when Jesus starts to interact with these Pharisees, the Jesus revolution begins with a whole new way, a whole different, completely other way of what it looks like and what it means to live righteously, to live rightly in the sight of God and in the sight of people. And I want to show you through Matthew chapter 17, or chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, how Jesus does that, what it means for the people he was originally talking to, and then the beautiful, breathtaking, hopefully freeing news for you and me today as people who would come under God and say, I want to live that way. I want to live that way. Let's look at what Jesus teaches here. He says this starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, just a quick time out. Jesus is, is sort of, is hearing what the people are thinking, as it were. And isn't that, that would be a terrifying thing. A lot of us think we'd love to interact with Jesus and love to be around Jesus. And, and indeed, we would. But isn't there a certain aspect of being around Jesus that would be absolutely terrifying? Where he goes, why are you thinking that? Um... Sorry, and then I mean, like, all, the whole time you're around him, you're like, don't think that, don't think that. And he's like, why are you thinking about not thinking that? <laughs> um, I'm in a corner, I don't know. Save me. Um, but the people on this mountain were thinking, hey, if, and what Jesus says in the first 16 verses is that regardless of your circumstances, you're blessed. Like, when you, even when you mourn, you're blessed. And when you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. 
And it was completely countercultural to the way the Pharisees interacted with God and many other followers of God as well because their blessing was directly tied to how well do we perform this law. But when Jesus talks about blessing, he didn't talk at all about the law. So the people on the crowd, in the crowd on this little hillside start going, hey, 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 hey. This is just another form of this um, secular humanism that these Greeks wanted to pound down our throats. Because he's talking about blessing, apart from the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not, a, not the, the smallest punctuation mark or the smallest letter will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Hmm. Jesus says, I, I actually, I love the law. The law is good. All 613 commands, good. I'm for them. And not only am I for them, but I am the picture of what it looks like to follow the law perfectly. That's what he says to them. I didn't come to wipe this out. I came to fulfill it. Um, think of it this way, uh, in, in the way that we look at the prophecy of Jesus' birth. For the years leading up to Jesus' birth, people talked about the prophecy that he would be born in the little town that we call Bethlehem. And when Jesus is born, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, we don't talk about that prophecy being wiped out. We talk about it being fulfilled. Literally, the Greek word means to fill to the point of overflowing. And so what Jesus says about himself is, I didn't come to wipe out the law. I didn't come to take the law away. I came to show you what it looks like to live the law perfectly. But if Jesus fulfilled the law, then apart from Jesus, the law is unfilled. Uh, apart from Jesus, the law is empty. See, see, he fills the law by giving it meaning. He fulfills the prophets by being what they had all talked about and hoped for. He fulfills the moral law and that he's the only one who ever obeyed it. And he fulfills the ceremonial law, the, the sacrificial system that the Jewish people had because he's the perfect sacrifice, as scripture talks about him. He completes, Hebrew says, all sacrifice for sin. And so when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, I have fulfilled the law, he's talking to a group of people who this would just have been absolutely mind-blowing for, that they were no longer under the law, but that they were in relationship with the one who'd kept it perfectly. You see, Jesus starts his interaction with the Pharisees off by saying, you got to have a, a better righteousness, a different righteousness. And he gives them a foundation on which to stand. And here's how we're going to phrase it this morning. That we have a new foundation, credited righteousness, not earned righteousness. The theological term is imputed righteousness. What Jesus says to these followers of his on this mountain is that you're no longer under the law because I have fulfilled the law perfectly and I've given you my fulfillment of it. I've given you my perfection. And as we talk about living it right, 
Righteous living, as it comes to interaction with God, any other starting point other than the imputed, credited righteousness that God gives you and I as his followers, any other foundation is sinking sand that will let you down, I promise you. But what Jesus starts off with is by saying, hey, your righteousness, your right living, your right standing does not come from you. It comes from me. This is the way that Paul writes it in the book of Romans. He says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Isn't that great? It doesn't say that in the gospel the righteousness of God is earned. In the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, the announcement of God's work here in redeeming sinful humanity to himself, he, he, in the gospel, he reveals the fact that righteousness comes from him. From faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. I love the way that Martin Luther sums this up when he says this. Although I'm a sinner by the law, And under the condemnation of the law, I do not despair and I do not die because Christ lives in me. He is my righteousness and my everlasting life. Friends, that's the song of the believer for all eternity. We sung about it this morning that when we stand before the throne of God, our only plea, our only declaration will be, Jesus, thank you. Because you have been abundantly good to me, way better than I could have ever deserved. And what Jesus says is that living it right, practical living in this world begins with this foundation of understanding that God has given you righteousness by his grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it because you're awesome. He gave it to you because you needed it. And he loved you enough. To fulfill it. Listen to the way that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 states this. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. See, see, there's two ways to fulfill a law. There's two ways to fulfill a law. One, you can either keep the law, so, so you don't speed, both of you in here that don't speed. Congratulations. So, so you either don't speed or this from the majority of us, or you pay the speeding ticket. Either way, you fulfill the law. Well, well, the thing about Jesus, when he says, I've fulfilled the law, he actually does both. He lives the perfect life. He is the one who had no sin. And he also steps into the law and under the law to pay the penalty for people like you and me who couldn't. He says, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's That's awesome. You can feel free to say amen to that. And, and here's the thing, and, and a lot of church dumb today, if that's even a word, it is now, okay. Um, what we tell people is um, God sees you as righteous. Well, see, what this passage says is not that God, he sees you as righteous because he makes you righteous. There's a huge difference. A lot of people walk around with our, our, our heads hung thinking that, man, if we can just do a little bit more, then God will be pleased with us. And we treat our relationship with God a lot like we treat our credit rating. You know, when we sin, it takes a dive. And then the better we do, we work our way up a little bit more, a little bit more, 
a little bit more. And he says, you don't have your own credit. You, you, you have Jesus's credit in your account. On your best day and on your worst day, he is your righteousness. And the reality is our best days probably aren't that good. And our bad days may not be as bad as we think. But he says, you have my righteousness. He came to fulfill the law. Well, so we have a new foundation upon which to stand, number one. But we have a new method, a new way of interacting with God, number two. A new method, a focus on relationship with Jesus, not conformity to the law. So because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, because he fills up what God demanded of the law and he gives that fulfillment to you and I, we have a new method of interacting with God and living quote unquote righteously. Our goal, because Jesus is our righteousness, is to live in relationship with him, to follow after him, to love him, to worship him, to honor him. When our focus becomes sin management, we rob ourselves of the glory that God intended for us to live in as we follow after him. When our goal becomes a list of things that we are not going to do or sins that we're going to stop doing, when that becomes what we shoot at and what it becomes what our arrow is pointed at, then our arrow is not pointed at God. See, this is the huge um, fall of the Pharisees. The, the law became their God. And when the law was their God, Jesus couldn't be. You see, I think the biggest, one of the biggest um, ways that the enemy gets the follower of Jesus off course is that he takes good things in our life and stirs us to make them ultimate things. So, so you can do this with your marriage, you can do this with food, you can do this with reading your Bible. The Pharisees did it with obeying the law. It became the ultimate thing, and when it became the ultimate thing, God wasn't the ultimate thing, and anytime God isn't the ultimate thing, quote-unquote righteousness or living it right is always going to be a fraction of what God intended for it to be. But this has always been the way that this idea, this truth has functioned in Scripture. Listen to the first place that the word righteousness, living it right, is ever used. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham's an old man, and God comes to him and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he doesn't laugh. He says, I believe you. Listen to the way that the book of Genesis says what happens. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him. He counted his belief. He credited his belief to him as what? Righteousness. Now, this idea is picked up in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where this scripture is quoted. It's in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. And, and Martin Luther, as he's reading his Bible in the 15, early 1500s, comes across this idea that righteousness is credited to us, not earned by us. And it's the beginning, it's the incipient stages of the Reformation where he starts going, listen, God isn't interested so much as whether I obey and fall under the papal system. He's interested in whether or not I live by faith. And so... As, as many of us are evangelical Christians, we, we, we are for imputed righteousness, credited righteousness. But something happens along the way where I don't know if we're as for what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, when he says this. 
Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see, faith isn't the entry point only. Faith is the way that this whole Christian life focuses. And see, the Pharisees had faith in their obedience. They had a desire to be obedient, but God was pointing them back to faith and to relationship with Jesus. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts this, and he says this. This is where the righteousness of the disciple exceeds or is greater than that of the Pharisee. It's grounded solely upon the call to fellowship with him, he alone, who fulfills the law. Your faith in Jesus is the period, singular, only work that he has called you to focus on and do. Everything else is a byproduct and an outflow from that. So when we, when we sin, it's not, God, help me be more patient. Because has that any, ever worked for anyone? I mean, when I focus on my patience, I find a lot of things I need to be patient about. See, same thing happens with anger. If I focus on my anger, man, I, I become a more angry person. Our response to sin in our life is, Jesus, help me cling to you, the fulfiller of the law, my righteousness given to me, and help me obey and walk by faith in you. That's our response. That's our response. Listen to the way that Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. He says, this whole crowd of people says to him, well, then what must we do? to be doing the works of God? Like, what must we do to be righteous? What must we do to be living it right? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Period. That's it? That's it. Now, the outflow of that it has ripple effects that influence every single area of your life. You see, the law is never the source of righteousness. It never, it never stirs righteousness in, in us, but it always is the course of righteousness. The law is never the source of righteousness, but forever the course. So the people that live in righteousness, they naturally are people that obey and follow. But Jesus says, your focus, your goal, if you had one arrow, what you shoot for is believe in me. Everything else will be an outflow from that. But hey, we're, we are really good at focusing on other things. Even really good things that we focus on and that become our goal and our God can become bad things. Listen to the way that Jesus interacted with people who were following him about their view of Scripture, even. I mean, is it possible that Scripture reading can actually take us off course from the true meaning of what Jesus called us to do? The invitation he asked for us? Listen to what he says. You search the scriptures, you read, you study, you know, you memorize because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You know, just so you don't like um, splice an audio of that comment and put it online and say, Ryan doesn't think we should read scripture anymore. Not what, not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is that when our goal of reading and memorizing doesn't lead us to Jesus, it doesn't do us a service. 
See, the end of studying scripture, and I hope that you do because he is the bread of life and he wants to give you meaning and hope, but the goal of scripture is to lead us to the one who scripture points to and says he fulfilled it. He did it. It's over. Your righteousness is completely founded in him yesterday, today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity. That's the goal is will you come and will you know him? Will you know that he's for you and that he loves you? Will you know that his grace covers all of your sin? Will you come to him and know that he just loves being with you? That's the goal of scripture. Faith, relationship. But he says you stop short. Jesus tells this crowd, you stop short of that. You memorized, but you didn't come and taste and see that I'm good. Well, you may be saying, hey, Ryan, um, Verse 19 says we should keep the law. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's talk about this. Verse 19. Therefore, so because, therefore, uh, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, see, the Pharisees, they, they were painfully aware that they could not keep the whole law. And so they started making these provisions. They started talking about heavy laws and light laws, and they started sort of making ways around keeping the laws that were really, really heavy. And what Jesus says is, no, I love the whole law. I'm for the whole law. I think the whole law is good. And the second thing he says is that our life in the kingdom, under the kingship of Jesus, our life is an invitation to be obedient. He's not saying if you break the commands, you don't get into heaven, okay? That's not what he says. Notice that everybody he talks about in verse 19 is in the kingdom, in the kingdom. What he does say is that the joy that you taste and the vitality of the life that you live is tied and connected to whether or not we live in obedience. See, it's not, we don't live in obedience in order to get something from God. We live in obedience because God has been abundantly good to us and we trust that he is good and has our best in mind. And so what Jesus does is he gives these people a whole new motivation for righteousness. And the new motivation is walking in joyful obedience, not trying to avoid condemnation. It's his invitation to you. It's his invitation to me. Greatest in the kingdom are people who taste the joy of following after Jesus. They are the, they're the husbands that sacrificially love their wives and lay their lives down for their family and know what it looks like and what it means to live as a follower of Christ. And they go, God, you are good. You are good. See, the Pharisees had two motivations for obedience. One was fear. They were afraid that if they did something wrong or bad, that God would um, oust them from the kingdom. The first one was fear. The second one was pride. They loved to wear that badge of, I keep the heaviest commandments. But you see, kingdom obedience is completely different. 
Obedience under Jesus is completely different because we're not trying to obey in order to avoid condemnation. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Your condemnation was placed on him. When he died on Calvary, it died with him. And when he was raised from the dead, your life was raised with him. You're no longer trying to avoid condemnation. You don't have any condemnation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ... No, that's not Romans 8.1. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is also really good. Man, stick to the notes, Ryan. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if our goal, our motivation, isn't to avoid condemnation, then what is our goal? What is our motivation? Well, the gospel gives us two motivations for obedience. One is that we might walk in the joy that is following after Jesus. And two, that we might live in response to the unbelievable great mercy and grace that God has showered down on us. Those are the two gospel-centered motivations for obedience. You're like, well, Ryan, that sounds too easy. I mean, Ryan, shouldn't, be a, shouldn't being a follower of Jesus be hard? Shouldn't there be something more, Ryan, than just, just have faith and, and believe and respond to his grace and accept his grace? Isn't there a time where we need to pull up our bootstraps and just get it done? Well, let me, let me let Jesus answer. He says this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, those who are those who pulling up your bootstraps hasn't worked for. Those who obedience to the law, you, you, you're painfully aware that you fall short of it. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, take my way upon you, take my teaching upon you, the Jesus way upon you, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So, so here's the thing, if we, if we don't have rest, we may not be walking in the Jesus way. For he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, so we just, are we just fatalists? Or we just throw our hands up in the air and say, well, all right, if he took care of it, then he took care of it. No, see, I love what Dallas Willard says. He says that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning we are people who put effort in, but we put it in in the right things. Our effort isn't to avoid condemnation. It's to joyfully walk with the creator and sustainer of it all. Our desire is not to keep the law. Our desire is to walk in relationship with Jesus. And our desire is not to try to fulfill the law. It's to know and trust the one who already has. It's a different way. It's a different way. Finally, he says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your right living surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. I mean, they would have been shocked. The people on this mountain would have been like, well, then we're done. We're out. It's laughable. It's the football coach pulling their JV team around and saying to them, if we don't beat the Broncos this year, our season's a failure. I mean, it's, it's comical. These, these people tithed on their spices for crying out loud. You can imagine being in the temple and getting just spices going. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you? I don't, what do we do with this? You know, praise be to God. But here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus does. He sets up a whole new goal. He sets up a whole new goal. You see, the Christian righteousness, the, the righteousness of the follower of Jesus surpasses pharisaical righteousness in kind, in type, not necessarily in degree. He's saying this is a whole different focus. And you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and you understand, definitely. Not a focus on, on just obeying and, and, and not killing people, but really not even being angry. It's a different focus. And so the new goal that he has for us as followers of Jesus is inward transformation, not behavioral modification. And the reality of it is, friends, will you look up at me for just a second? The reality of it is, is that everything we do comes and flows from our heart. So to play the behavioral modification game is a game of perpetually finding more and more things that we want to try to squelch down. Is that really how we want to live? See, Jesus' invitation has come to me. Receive from me. Understand under me that you are a person who's in desperate need and I am a God who has fulfilled it. Quit trying to identify the symptoms and identify the things that are going wrong and try to knock them out, but come to me and see what the root of the problem is. My, uh, my mom is, is starting to get worse and there's more and more symptoms that keep coming up and, and the doctors have no idea what's actually wrong with her, so all they do is treat the symptoms. I mean, so there's just medication upon medication to take and it's like this regimen in the morning and evening that takes a long time. I think of a lot of us interact with God in the same way. And what he says is, will you come to me? Will you receive from me a new heart, a new righteousness, a new hope? Instead of trying to earn it on your own. Instead of just trying to, like the arcade game with the little alligators that pop up and you have the little bopper and you boom, 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 boom. Would you go after the root of the problem and allow me to transform you on the inside? Well, you're probably going, <clears throat> well, that's great, Ryan, but how does that happen? How do we become transformed people? What, is that, what does that really look like? What does that really mean? And, and I'll just, I'm going to say it as succinctly as I can. It means that we drown the wickedness of our hearts in the unbelievable, breathtaking, beautiful grace of the gospel daily. The anecdote to a heart that isn't in tune to God is the grace and mercy that he shed for you on the cross. Because the scripture is going to say really clearly, we love because he first loved us. So as we're people who sit under the waterfall of his grace and mercy daily, we start to be stirred with this unbelievable truth that in my need and in my sinfulness and in my brokenness, he loved me. He loved me. 
And it stirs my heart to, to worship him. You see, every single time we worship our way into sin and we worship our way out. That's why it's beautiful that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So you don't walk back to him with your tail between your legs. You walk back to him confidently in faith, declaring, you took care of it. You did it. You became all my sin for me that I might become all of your righteousness. And that's the heart that worships. That's the heart that says back to God, I love you, I'm for you, and I'm walking with you. It's not the person that says, I'm going to try really hard to knock this out of the ballpark today. It's the person who's stirred by the grace and by the mercy of the gospel. I love the way that Ralph Erkshine says it, and he says this, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. May the law continue to do its work in us, friends. May continue to fulfill its purpose by leading us back to the one, to the one who fulfilled the purpose of the law. It's a new kind of righteousness. It was a proposition that didn't exactly make Jesus a lot of friends amongst the Pharisees. Maybe they thought it was just too easy. Maybe they thought it just didn't demand enough of them. But the invitation of Jesus is, will you take my yoke upon you? Will you find rest for your souls? Will you find joy in obedience? I am gentle and humble in heart. And I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that lives it right under the weight of the only one who ever could and the gift of his righteousness to you and me. May it be the story that you sing you will be clothed not in the righteousness of your own, but in his righteousness for all of eternity. I pray that you would live under the weight and truth of knowing it, not just when you get there, you'll know it then, but may you know it now and may it change the way that we live. Would you stand with me as we close our time together in prayer? Hey, before we go rushing out of here, I just want to give you a moment to just to reflect on, on just the truth that we've seen in God's word today. For those of us that are struggling with, with shame, struggling with guilt, Jesus, would you remind each person who's in that place today that you've fulfilled the law? and that you've given them your righteousness. That this very moment we stand before the throne of God, holy, pure, spotless, and blameless because of Jesus. Father, for those of us who have slipped into sort of sin management Christianity, would you invite us back out knowing that there's no condemnation and so that therefore we are freed to live in relationship with you? Jesus, would you invite us back to 
the joyful obedience that comes as we taste and see that you're good. Your laws aren't burdensome. They're an invitation to fullness of life. And Jesus, would you transform us from the inside out as our heart marinates in the goodness of the gospel, your grace and your mercy to us. May it change us, may it shape us, and may it make us, as you say in the Sermon on the Mount, as a city on the hill, a light, salt and light to the world, please. It's in your name that we pray, amen.